0: Father, uh, you do do call us uh, to sing praises to your name, Um, and and sometimes uh, that is hard to do when we're struggling with great trial. Uh, But Lord, you are worthy of that, worthy of us taking our cares and casting them on you so that our our voices are freed up to sing your praises. Uh, But Lord, uh, you call us to acts of worship beyond uh, simply mere singing, um, sometimes uh, compared to waking up in the middle of the night to, to feed a baby or uh, getting cut off by someone in traffic. Uh, to continue to worship you in those times can be more difficult than, than singing a song to you, but you call us to worship you then as well, to, uh, to, to take every part of us, our thoughts, our words, and our actions, and to lay it upon the altar of service to you. Um, So, Lord, uh, make us those who worship you every hour of every day, um, not just in song, but in deed and in word. Um, Make us uh, true worshipers, those who worship you in spirit and in truth, who follow Christ not just on a Sunday morning, but on every other day of the week. Um, And, Lord, we we thank you for your word that you have given to us to sanctify us. Lord, your word is truth, and you sanctify us by that truth. and we need your spirit to to use your word, to wield it in our hearts, because uh, the, the words of a mere man such as myself cannot change anybody, cannot do anything. Uh, only your word can accomplish uh, change in our lives. And we, we do ask, the Lord, that you would do that uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing to make our way through the book of Galatians, so you can... Open up to Galatians chapter 1, and Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter today. We'll go from verse 11 all the way to verse 24, and I pray that the Lord will help me to not bore you out of your minds, but that's what we're going to try to do to finish chapter 1 today. And because it's a longer chapter, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll just read it as we go. So turn to Galatians 1. And I wanted to start out by asking you what is one of the most common methods people use who are antagonistic to Christianity to try and get you to doubt the Bible? What is, what is one of the most common ways people like that use to try to get you to doubt the Bible? Well, one of the most common things they do is that they, they say that this is just a human book just a human book, that God is not the ultimate author, men are. And because men are, they say, you cannot trust this book. You cannot trust what it says. They say, God didn't write that, men did. Men came up with these ideas, therefore, you can't trust it. Why do they say that? Well, they say that because as long as I believe that this is God's word, I'm not going to believe what they're telling me. Because whose word am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the word of a mere man, men who lie all the time, men who are so often mistaken? Or am I going to believe the God who is truth itself and who cannot lie? Obviously, I'm going to believe the, the one who's trustworthy, God, over against men who, who say things like that. But if men can get me to believe that this book is not the word of God, if men can try to get me And succeed in getting me to believe that the gospel is just a human invention, well, what have they succeeded in doing? They've succeeded in leveling the playing field. Because no longer is it God's word against man's word, now it's man's word against man's word. And then they can do some real damage after they've leveled the playing field. And that's not a new tactic. We're going to see that the false teachers in Galatia were using that exact same tactic. Now, we're going to spend the next few Sundays, today, next week, the following week, working through what is an extended autobiography that Paul writes for the Galatian believers. And Paul begins here in verse 11, and he continues with that autobiography all the way to chapter 2, verse 14, where he is rehearsing various events in his life. According to the commentator F.F. Bruce, Paul's autobiography takes up nearly one-fifth of this whole letter. Now, why does Paul spend so much time doing that? What's the point of him rehearsing all of that for these believers? Well, as with many of Paul's letters, we're we're only getting one side of the conversation. We're only hearing what Paul has said. We're not really hearing what, what has been said in the church. So it's not always clear as to what specific problems or concerns Paul is responding to. There are some things that we know for sure. It's spelled out clearly for us. What is the main problem in in the churches of Galatia? Do you remember? The main problem is that they are abandoning, or they're in the process of abandoning what? The faith or the gospel, right? And we know who it is who is being a stumbling block to these believers? False teachers, right? And how are they stumbling these believers? They're stumbling them by bringing in a false gospel. And they're slowly convincing these Galatian believers to believe their false gospel over against the gospel that Paul preached. That's very clear. But what is not so clear is what what methods and tactics the false teachers, the Judaizers, were using to succeed In this deception. Well, if we pay careful attention to what Paul says, we can begin to get an idea of of the, the methods of these false teachers. From how Paul argues in this letter, it seems that these Judaizers had begun discrediting Paul. In order to tear down his gospel, they had begun to tear down the messenger. That's their tactic. In order to tear down the message, they are tearing down the messenger so that the believers will begin to doubt the message that the messenger brought. Remember, uh, we saw two weeks ago how closely tied together were Paul's apostleship and the gospel that he preached. Remember, to be a a big A apostle was to be someone who was sent by God to inerrantly deliver the gospel message. So if the false teachers can get the Galatian believers to doubt that Paul is a big A apostle, that means they will be able to get them to doubt the message that he brought to them. In verse 1, Paul began pressing back on this, uh, this tactic that these false teachers were doing. What does he start this letter saying? He says that he's Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That right there, and we're going to see from the rest of what he says, that indicates that these false teachers were discrediting Paul by giving the misinformation that he was not sent directly by Jesus. Okay? By doing that, they are saying he's not a big A apostle. He's a little A apostle. Instead of being sent directly by Jesus, Paul was sent by middlemen. Paul was sent by the 12 apostles in Jerusalem, not directly by Jesus. That's what they were saying, and that's what Paul is pressing back on. He's saying, no, no, no. I wasn't sent by the apostles. I was sent by Jesus himself. But by these false teachers saying that Paul was sent by men rather than Jesus, what have they done? They have reduced Paul to their level because these Judaizers, they weren't apostles, but they were saying, we came from Jerusalem, we rubbed shoulders with the apostles, and they were saying that Paul was just like them. He'd been taught by the apostles. He came and was commissioned by them to bring the gospel. So that's what they've done. They've brought Paul down to their level in the minds of the Galatians. As long as the Galatians thought that Paul was sent directly from Jesus, for the false teachers, it was God's word against their word, right? If Paul was sent by Jesus, what Paul said was was whose word? God's word. And as long as the Galatians believed that about Paul, the false teachers didn't really stand a chance, But if they could get the Galatians to think that Paul was not sent directly by Jesus, but that he had been sent by mere men, all of a sudden, Paul's on their level. And it becomes Paul's word against their word. And that's a whole lot easier to deceive in that sort of situation than the other. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you see what they've done uh, with Paul? So, that is what Paul's doing. He's spending all of this time as we're going to see, pressing back on that idea that he was sent from men rather than from Jesus. Now, why do we care? Why do we care today? What? In order for you to not be bored to tears as we go through this chapter, you need to understand why do we care today? Well, did Paul only teach the Galatians? When you open up your Bible and you turn to Ephesians or Romans or First and Second Corinthians, Who is Paul teaching? Teaching you. If Paul said he was an apostle sent by Jesus, but he really wasn't, what do you have to do with half of the books of the New Testament? You have to rip them out of your Bible and throw them into the trash. So we really need to make sure that that Paul is who he says he was. And so what he's doing is showing us that he really is who he says he was. An apostle, a big A apostle, sent by Jesus. So we need to pay attention to what he's saying. So let's begin looking at this text. First, in verses 11 and 12, we see Paul's claim. We see him pushing back against the false teacher's misinformation about him. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Paul's being very clear, isn't he? Despite what these believers have been led to believe, Paul is not some wayward student sent by the Jerusalem apostles. The gospel that he preached to the Galatians is not according to man. It's not a gospel that he learned from others and that he modified for his own ends. Verse 12, he says... For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he explains further that the gospel he preached to the Galatians that was not handed to him or taught to him by mere men. No, the gospel that he preached was one that had come to him how? What does he say? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had been revealed to Paul. Now that word revelation, it's the Greek word apocalypsis. You can hear the word, the English word apocalypse there, right? Well, think of the last book of the Bible. What's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. And it's the Greek word apocalypsis. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We think apocalypse means end of the world. No, apocalypse means revelation. It's an uncovering of something, a revealing of something. Jesus uses the verb form of that word when he was talking with Peter. Do you remember in Matthew 16, the great confession that Peter made? What did he say to Jesus? He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to him? In verse 17, Jesus responded to that confession by Peter by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In the Bible, when, when, uh, when the language of revelation is used, it refers to God directly revealing something to someone. So that's what Paul is saying in verse 12. Flesh and blood didn't teach me the gospel. God revealed it to me. God uncovered Jesus to me. That's what he's saying there. Now, when did that happen? Well, let's turn back to Acts chapter 9. And keep your finger in Acts because we're going to flip back there often as we trace what Paul says against what Luke records in the book of Acts. Acts 9... Here we see when this event happens, when Jesus is revealed to Paul. Paul is his Greek name, his Hebrew name is Saul. Acts 9 verse 1 says, Now Saul, that's Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way... The way, that was just another name for Christianity. Jesus is the way. So if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, "'Who are you, Lord?' And he said, the voice said, "'I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do.' The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank.' Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see right there, that is when Jesus was revealed to Paul. There was no apostle there. No man showed Jesus to him. Jesus himself showed himself to Paul. To Paul, Now, that's Paul's claim in Galatians 1, and we just saw it verified by Luke in the book of Acts. Paul's claim in verses 11 to 12 is that nobody taught him the gospel. It was revealed to him on the road to Damascus in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's his claim. He said, the false teachers are wrong. I didn't learn the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles. I learned it directly from the Lord himself. That's his claim. He's going to move on now to defend that claim. In verses 13 to 14, we see Paul uh, speak of his pre-conversion life. And as Paul goes through verses 13 and 14 and beyond, what is he doing? Remember, the false teachers are saying Paul learned the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and he messed it up when he preached to the Galatians. It's very interesting. Paul, in verses 13, all the way through the end of this chapter, he is giving a years-long alibi. He's showing these Galatians why what the false teachers said could not be true. In order for the Jerusalem apostles to commission Paul to be an apostle, Paul would have needed to spend significant time in Jerusalem being taught by them and being affirmed by them in his commissioning. He's giving a long alibi showing he never even had the chance to do that. That's what he's going to start to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right, let's look at Paul's pre-conversion life. Verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Now, uh, there was a time when Paul was in Jerusalem for a significant amount of time. There was a time when he was near where the apostles were, where theoretically he could have been instructed by them, he could have been commissioned by them. But there's a big problem for the false teachers. When Paul was there, what was he trying to do? Was he sitting at the apostles' feet? No, he was trying to get stones thrown at their head. That's what Paul was doing while he was in Jerusalem, right? He said that he was trying to destroy the church. And was he just kind of dabbling in persecuting the church? What does he say in verse 13? I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. Paul was all in on persecuting the church. And it says that he tried to destroy the church. That word for destroy, it's the Greek word partheo, and it means to attack and cause complete destruction. It could be translated to pillage, to make havoc of, to annihilate. Paul was trying to wipe the church off the face of the earth. Now, why was he trying to do that? He was trying to do that because he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And he thought that anyone who did believe that deserved to be executed. Verse 14, Paul says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul, before he came to faith in Christ, he says he was advancing in Judaism. What's Judaism? Well, when Paul says Judaism, he likely has in mind uh, the law of God and the oral tradition that uh, later teachers they 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 taught how to interpret the law, how to apply the law, so that combination made up Judaism, and Jesus had strong words of denunciation for the oral tradition, and if you want to uh, look that up on your own, a good example of that is Matthew 15 and verses one through six where Jesus condemns the oral traditions of men because they were overshadowing and twisting the law of God. But that that law tradition combination was Judaism. And that is what Paul was so extremely zealous for. And that zeal of his drove him to do violence against the church of God. Now, do you think Paul thought he was doing wrong? in trying to kill the church? No, he, he probably thought he was doing the right thing. He probably viewed himself like a Phineas. Remember in the book of Numbers, when there was an Israelite man who had forbidden relations with a pagan woman? Do you remember what Phineas did? He drove a spear through them, and God was pleased with what he did. Or Paul might view himself like an Elijah. Remember that showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Elijah slew all 450-some of those Baal prophets, and God was pleased. Paul probably is viewing himself like that, saying, These Christians are blasphemers. I'm just doing what Phineas did. I'm just doing what Elijah did. Surely God is pleased with what I'm doing. So that's that's Paul's pre- conversion life. And if you look back in Acts 7 and Acts 8, Paul was there in Jerusalem and he was full-on supporting the persecution of the church. So Paul, he was not a prime candidate to be a disciple of the apostles. He's not someone they would be looking at and saying, you know what, I think we should send him out to preach the gospel. No, he was not that sort of guy. Next, Paul Begins moving in, talking about his conversion and his commissioning as an apostle. We see that back in Galatians 1, verses 15 through 16a. So look at verse 15. It says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. The main idea there is right at the end of verse 16. Because remember, Paul is making the point that he didn't learn the gospel from men. So that's the main thing he's getting at. But on his way there, he, he describes his conversion, doesn't he? In verses 15 through the beginning of 16. And we're going to briefly move through that piece by piece. So let's look again at at how Paul describes his conversion. Verse 15, he says, But when God. So his, his conversion happened at a certain point in time. And we read about that in Acts 9. We already read that. Then Paul describes this God. How does he describe God in verse 15? He says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. So though Paul's conversion and calling happened on that road to Damascus when he was an adult, God had planned it when, way before then, right? Let's uh, let's turn over to Isaiah, Isaiah 49, because Paul here he's using language that the prophets used to describe himself, to describe his conversion and his calling. So he was saved at a certain point in time, but God had planned his salvation, planned his calling way ahead of time, which tells us that God is sovereign over salvation. He is sovereign over the ministries that he calls us to. But Isaiah 49 and verse 1, Isaiah, the prophet, this is one of the servant songs, and Isaiah is writing from uh, the servant, the Messiah's perspective. Verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from when? What does it say in verse 1? The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. Next, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 1, just a few pages to the right. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So just as God had set apart his servant from the womb to be Messiah, and just as God had set apart Jeremiah from the womb to be his prophet, so God had set apart Paul from the womb to be his apostle. It wasn't a man's choice, him becoming an apostle. It was God's choice of him. Back in Galatians 1.15, Paul says that this God, who set him apart from his mother's womb, called him through his grace. God called Paul through his grace. This calling that Paul speaks of here, it's not God's general call, which goes out to all men, God calls on everyone, everywhere, to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the general call of God. Jesus mentions this call in Matthew 22 and verse 14 when he says, Many are called, but few are chosen. He's speaking of that general call, that gospel invitation that goes out to everyone. That's not the kind of call Paul is talking about here. The kind of call that Paul is talking about here is God's effectual, effective call, where God, by his call, powerfully brings about whatever he wills. It's like when God called light into being back in the very beginning of creation. He said, let there be light, and there was light. There was no conversation about maybe light wanted to come into being, maybe not. No, God called it and it happened. It's like when Jesus was standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus who had been dead for four days and was starting to smell and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? Lazarus came forth. Paul talks about this call in Romans 8 and verse 30 when he says that those whom God predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God doesn't call everyone this way, but he did call Paul that way. And if you are sitting here trusting in Christ, he called you that way. You didn't believe in Jesus because you were wiser than the next guy. You believed in Jesus because he called you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you came by faith, willingly, because God called you. And how did he call Paul? How did he call you? By grace. That's what Paul says. He called me by his grace. So God doesn't call effectively you to salvation because you did a bunch of good things. No, he calls you unto salvation because of what his son did for you by dying for your sins and rising from the dead. Then at the end of verse 15, Paul says that That this God who called me by his grace was pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son in me. It's interesting that Paul uses that little Greek preposition normally translated in. God revealed his son in Paul. What does that mean? Well, let's jump over to chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives where? In me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jump over to chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says, because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. On that road to Damascus, God revealed his son in Paul. God, when, when, when Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul didn't just see him with his physical eyes. Paul finally saw Jesus for who he was with the eyes of his heart. That revelation wasn't just an external thing, it was also an internal thing. Jesus, or Paul finally understood that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He is worthy for me to surrender my entire life to without reservation. That's what happened. And if you're trusting in Christ this morning, that's what God did to you. He revealed his Son inside of you. And if you don't know Christ yet, you need to ask God to reveal his Son in you. To show you Jesus for who Jesus really is. And once you trust in Jesus, because of who Jesus really is, he will send the Spirit into your heart, and he will dwell within you. So that's Paul's conversion and his commissioning. And notice, the apostles are nowhere in sight. The apostles from Jerusalem, they weren't with him on that road. They didn't call him. They didn't commission him. God did it directly. Next, Paul begins talking about his career. And he's continuing to press back on this false notion from the fa- false teachers that he was commissioned by other men. He's going to show, no, that wasn't, that's not what happened. We're going to look at Paul's career. And he, he lays it out for us in the second half of verse 16 all the way To the end of chapter 1. Continuing in verse 16, he says that God was pleased to reveal his son in Paul so that he might preach him among the Gentiles. And when he did that, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So what happened when Paul was saved on that road to Damascus? Well, we know what he did not do. He did not go back to Jerusalem to receive further instruction from the apostles. He didn't go back to Jerusalem in order to have them verify his commission from the Lord. He didn't go back there to have them commission him to the work of ministry. That's not what he did. Immediately instead, he started doing ministry work. And that's confirmed for us in the book of Acts. Let's go back to Acts 9. Acts 9 and verse 19. So Paul has been converted. He was baptized uh, by Ananias. Verse 19, he took food and was strengthened. Continues on in verse 19. Now for several days, Paul was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began doing what? began proclaiming who? Jesus in the synagogues, saying what? He is the Son of God. All those who, hearing him, continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Paul kept, or Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So, we see right there, Paul didn't go back to Jerusalem to get more information or to get a commission from the apostles. No, he immediately started doing the work of the ministry. And he stayed in Damascus, it says, verse 23, uh, after his conversion, many days elapsed. Now, Luke here, he doesn't give a detail that Paul gives, does he? What, What detail does Luke not mention here? That Paul went where? Arabia, right? That's that's a a piece of information that we get from Paul in Acts 1. And it shouldn't surprise us that Luke doesn't mention it because it wasn't Luke's purpose to give us every single little thing that Paul ever did, right? But but we learn that from Paul. He says back in chapter 1 and verse 17, he went away to Arabia. Now what was Paul doing there? Well, Arabia, if you look up here, pretend I'm showing you a map, all right? And my fist is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And Jerusalem's down here, Damascus is up here. Just east of Damascus, you have Arabia, and it's a big, big piece of land. It goes south. Um, It's a very large area. And Arabia was also known as the Nabataean Kingdom, and the king of that kingdom was named the fourth. Now, let's look back at 2 Corinthians because we get a little hint as to what Paul was doing in Arabia. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32. This is the end of a long list of Paul's sufferings that he lays out for us. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Says, in Damascus, the ethnarch under eratos the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket, through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. So one of Aretas' governors tries to get Paul while he's in Damascus after he returned from Arabia. Now, apparently, Paul got on Eratas' bad side when he was in Arabia. When Paul got on someone's bad side, what was usually the reason for it? Any ideas? Yeah, proclaiming the gospel, right? So when Paul went to Arabia, that's likely what he was doing, proclaiming the gospel, just like he was in Damascus before he left. So Paul goes to Arabia, he comes back, he has to leave Damascus because he's trying to get caught by eratos and by the jews uh, in damascus as well what happens next back in galatians 1 verse 18 says then three years later i went up to jerusalem to become acquainted with cephas and stayed with him 15 days now paul here's being very honest he admits that he did go to jerusalem after he got back from arabia And the the period of time between his conversion and when he went to Jerusalem, we are told, is three years. So for three years, he never went back. Never went back to Jerusalem to be taught or to be commissioned by the apostles. He was out doing ministry, as the Lord called him to do. But he did go back three years after his conversion. And he did not go there in order to receive a commission from the apostles. Why did he go there? He tells us. I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, which is another name for Peter. That's why he went there. And we read about this in Acts 9 again. Turn to Acts 9, starting in verse 26. So Paul has escaped from Damascus after he got back from Arabia. We pick it up in verse 26. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord." And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So Paul gets to Jerusalem. He's trying to associate with the believers, but they're not having anything to do with him. Why not? Because three, just three years ago, what was he trying to do? He was trying to kill all of them. So it's understandable that they were a little hesitant to welcome him to them. But Barnabas trusted Paul. And Barnabas took Paul and introduced him to the apostles. Now, why did, why did Paul only stay there 15 days? Why so sure to stay? Well, what was he doing when he was at Jerusalem? He wasn't getting a commission from the apostles. He wasn't uh, being taught the gospel that he didn't know yet. No, in verses 28 and 29, what was he doing? He was preaching Jesus to the point to where he started to have others want to kill him. And then the disciples or the the church sent him away. That's why he was only there for 15 days. Now, back in Galatians 1, verse 19, Paul describes the circumstances of his stay. He says that while he was there visiting Cephas, visiting Peter... He said, I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. But wait a minute. Luke recorded Barnabas introducing Paul to the apostles. Plural. Apostles. Plural. But here Paul says he didn't see anybody uh, other than Peter except for James. Now, what does this imply about James? James, the Lord's brother. This is not James, one of the original 12. This is James, the Lord's brother. But Paul says, I didn't see any of the apostles except James. What does that imply about James? Any ideas? Yep, yep. he was commissioned to be an apostle as well. That's why when, when Luke says Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles, there's no contradiction. That was Peter and James who... Paul was brought to, the apostles. We, have, we don't have a record of James being commissioned to be that, but we do see in Acts, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Christ appeared to James, which needed to happen if he were to become an apostle, right? But what's the point of all that? Why is, why is Paul saying, I didn't see any other apostles than Peter and James while I was in Jerusalem? Why is he saying that? Well, he's making clear that there was no apostolic council that came around him and commissioned him. He didn't get the, there, there, there was no opportunity for that to happen. So he's continuing to make the point that he wasn't commissioned by men. He was commissioned by Jesus. You guys are doing great. You're hanging in there. You haven't shouted me down yet. I appreciate that. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 20 Paul continues. He says, Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. It's very important to Paul that the Galatians trust what he is saying. It's so important that he takes an oath before God that he's telling them the truth. The Galatians' belief in the gospel is hinging on this this claim of Paul that he was sent by Christ, not men. Verse 21, Paul says, Then, after his brief stay in in Jerusalem, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Do you remember where the disciples sent Paul when he was in Jerusalem and and there were threats on his life? Where did they send him? We saw it in verse 30 of chapter 9. Tarsus. Tarsus is in the region of Cilicia. And he's there for quite some time. Because we don't hear about Paul again until chapter 11 and verse 25 uh, where Barnabas comes from the new church in Antioch to get Paul. And where does Barnabas pick Paul up from? From Tarsus. So Paul is still there in Cilicia in the city of Tarsus. And Barnabas brings Paul back with him to Antioch. And where's Antioch? What region is Antioch in? Syria, right? And, and Paul stays there with Barnabas for a year, teaching that church with him. And that's what Paul says. He kind of sums up that years-long period with what he says in verse 21. After that brief stay in Jerusalem, he says, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He didn't, he didn't leave those regions in that time. Now, verse 22, Paul says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. So, churches of Judea, Jerusalem was in Judea, there were churches in Jerusalem and the surrounding province of Judea. And Paul's saying, most of them, other than the, the few that he met while he was in Jerusalem those 15 days, they didn't know him by sight they knew his name. They didn't know him by sight. What does that imply about Paul's travels? It implies that he didn't ever go back into that area. He wasn't there. If he had been there for some amount of time, they would recognize him by face. But they, he wasn't there, so they, they couldn't recognize him on sight. He was nowhere near Jerusalem throughout all that time. Now, verses 23 to 24, Paul says, of these churches of judea but only they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy and they were glorifying god because of me paul here he's very subtly but clearly undermining the false teachers claims that he was getting the gospel wrong you see how he's doing that he's saying that while i was in syria and cilicia preaching the gospel, the Judean churches, where the apostles are, they were hearing what I was doing. And what was their evaluation of what Paul was doing? Were they saying, boy, this Paul guy, he's really preaching a messed up gospel. We better correct what he's doing. No, they heard what he was doing and they were glad. They were affirming what he was doing. They were rejoicing in what he was doing. Which means that what he was preaching... What kind of gospel was it? Was it a false gospel or the true gospel? It was the true gospel. Paul was preaching the very same gospel that as an unbeliever he was so angry about and trying to destroy. That gospel, that true gospel, is what he was faithfully proclaiming. And the point of all this for these believers is, listen, the gospel that I preach to you, Paul says, The gospel that that Jesus is the Son of God, that he laid down his life for sinners and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. And there's no good work you need to do to earn that free gift. Jesus did it for you. He's saying that that is the true gospel. Now, how does this apply to us here today? Well, I think it's encouraging, even though it's a lot a lot of information, a lot of back and forth. But do you see how concrete the Christian faith is? The Christian faith is not some abstract philosophy that's disconnected from reality. It's not just a set of ideas on a page that you can't see or touch. No, this, this Christian faith is rooted in history. It has been experienced, it has been witnessed, it has been verified and recorded. Christianity is not a take-my-word-for-it sort of religion. We're not faced with having to choose between what one group of fallible men say in competition with what another group of fallible men say. No, God, who is truth, who cannot lie, he entered into human history through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And the Son of God, who is the Word of God, took on flesh, real flesh, and was born to a virgin that first Christmas day. And this this man grew up and obeyed God the Father perfectly, this God incarnate. He never sinned. And for three years he walked this earth proclaiming the good news concerning himself. And for the three years he was doing that, The twelve apostles were with him day and night, being instructed. And he would later commission those very men to go and proclaim his message. And then he went to the cross, where he physically died in the place of sinners. And he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he was seen by the twelve apostles. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. And they all were so convinced by what they saw that they were willing to die for the message that they had learned from Jesus and one of those who saw Jesus was Paul and like the 12 apostles ministering in Jerusalem Paul was directly commissioned by Jesus Christ to preach the good news and the gospel that Paul preached it was affirmed by the rest of the Christian church and any single one of the people in the Galatian churches, if they wanted to, they could take what Paul wrote here and go ask somebody, go to Jerusalem, ask them about it, go to the churches in Syria and Cilicia, ask them about it, and verify whether or not what Paul said was true. He wrote it down, he laid it out for them where he was, when he was there, so that they could know for sure that he was telling the truth. And the point for us today is that you can trust what this book says. But don't take my word for it. I'm not an apostle. Test it yourself. Just be honest enough to fairly evaluate the evidence. Look at the archaeological evidence that time and time again confirms the historical details of the Bible. Study the prophecies that have so perfectly and wondrously and miraculously been fulfilled. And most importantly, read the Bible for yourself. As you read it, you will find there's no book like it. When you read this book, it reads you. It exposes you for who you are. And it makes sense of this broken world in which we live. There's no other book, there's no other man-made teaching that can so accurately diagnose the problems that this world is in. Ask God to help you understand this book. And as you read it, taste and see the goodness of God. Be in awe of who Jesus is and how he is all satisfying to those who follow him. And as you learn about who he is and you come to the realization that he is worth following and you count the cost and find he is worth giving up all for, turn from your sins and trust him to be your Savior and Lord, and he'll never let you down. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is a very long passage and long sermon. Um, We thank you for uh, just helping us to uh, stay engaged, hopefully, with what your word was saying. And, And it can be difficult to understand how this applies to our lives, but help us, Lord, to see how important this is, what Paul has laid out for us. Because you, you led Paul to write so much of the New Testament. And we need to know that we can trust what he said. We need to know that the Christ he proclaimed really is the Messiah. That he really is the God-man, the only one who did what was required to save us. We need to, to know that that is true and trust it so that we can be saved by it. So Lord, may you use your word here in Galatians 1, to confirm the truth of what we read in your word uh, so that we uh, may have our faith established um, and that it may grow and that we will never be swayed by those who come and try to say, God didn't really say that. Lord, strengthen us in our faith. Help us to take our stand ever more firmly upon the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.